0: Hello, and welcome to episode 97 of WB40, the weekly podcast with me, Matt Ballantyne, and Chris Weston. Well, welcome uh, back to this mad miscellany of muttering. Uh, Mr. Weston, are you well?
1: I'm very well. That was a, a rather surprising display of alliterative skill there. Mr. Ballantyne, have you been taking some lessons? I'm actually uh, running
0: a training uh, thing tomorrow, a workshop about better communication, one of the things we're talking about is using rhyme and alliteration uh, as a way to be able to get messages across.
1: So if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit and all that kind of thing.
0: All of that. Yeah, yeah. There's this fantastic bit of we might have talked about this before, but there's a fantastic bit of um, uh, sort of vaguely neuroscience stuff or psychology stuff about it, which is because the brain is able to process alliteration and rhyme more easily. I think we have talked the, about this, yeah. The brain is remarkably lazy and so associates anything that is easier to process with it being more right, yeah, which that, is why po- politicians use it all the time.
1: That's true. It's a kind of rhetorical device, isn't it, in terms of uh, the way um, if you're speaking. And But there was a study this or reported on this week, wasn't there, about the, the, the old thing about um, beer, then wine, you'll feel fine. Wine, then beer, you'll feel queer. Right. And that kind of old rhyme about don't drink beer before wine, and all that kind of thing. And somebody had done a, a survey, a kind of a scientific test to see if this was indeed the, the case. And of course what they found is it's nonsense. Uh it doesn't matter how much uh, you know, it doesn't matter in which order you drink this stuff, you will you will feel bad if you have too much. Yes. And I always thought to myself that it was a fairly fairly ropey way to consider the effects of alcohol on on your system once it's metabolized is to Put some store in the way certain words rhyme with other words. <laughs> other words.
0: <laughs> well, no, but whiskey makes you frisky. It's the same thing, obviously that's scientifically. Right. Fr- but it isn't. It's not fat, but it does. It is more credible because of the way in which your brain processes. So that's one of the little tricks that I'm going to be uh, running in the workshop tomorrow. It's going to be interesting to see whether people can okay. take up on it or not. So, so can go. you come up
1: with a um, listen to WB40 alliterative device that uh, adds another twenty percent onto our listenership?
0: Uh, Listen to WB40, it's incredibly naughty.
1: Yes. Mr. Ballantyne is quite haughty.
0: (laughs) Yes, and all of that. So, um, anyway, what have we got on the show
1: this week before we dissolve into utter nonsense? Dissolve? I'm I'm liquid already. I completely dissolve. (laughs) Um, We have an interview with the splendid Mark Wilson, who is, well, he's an architect, isn't he? And um, we're talking about systems integrators this week, aren't we?
0: Yes. So after um, uh, some more left field stuff recently, although talking about licensing last week was fairly hey, you know, the- square in the CIO thing. Uh, we've got uh, Mark talking about what systems integrators are today and where they're heading and why we still need them. And uh, it was a good chat I had with him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and we also uh, see the return of Internet yin and yang. And uh, back to the, the usual form of me being the Eeyore-esque yin. Whilst you're being the piglet esque yang. Uh, and so I think we probably should just get on with that, really, shouldn't
1: we? Let's just crash on. So we've got yin and yang back for this week. We've got a, um, as you say, back to our old tricks of you providing the bleak internet yin. And I shall, shall I go first with the yang or should we just choose? Yeah, let's, start on, let's, on the, let's start
0: on the down and let's go end on, on a man. high because I think that's probably, you know, what we. We should be. Yeah, that's
1: right. That's we can we can forget about your.
0: Um. So. Uh. yeah So it's this week's Yin. Um. It was. A, I feel when I see anything that is a promoted tweet, instantly I'm kind of looking at it through jade coloured spectacles. And um, I saw something come through this morning, which was a a a, a some sort of future analyst from Goldman Sachs talking about a concept which I hadn't heard what well, I've heard of it but I didn't realize that people are actually talking like this It's called edge computing and what it is is basically this whiffly old video where this analyst talks about how yeah so um, everything's in the cloud now but sometimes internet bandwidth isn't good enough so you need to have computers more locally to do stuff like autonomous vehicles and so this whole spiel is basically saying we need to have computers doing computing as well as the cloud yeah and the edge computing is the nonsense nomenclature that's been attached
1: to this now look i mean i do think that their their video was pretty crap and goldman sachs are sort of skating on the edges of their understanding but edge computing i think is a term that has been around for a while and it's kind of it makes a lot of sense and we talked about it if you remember back in the much way back when we did the interview with richard braithwaite we talked about it because a lot of people, when they got into IoT, they bunged a lot of um, uh, sensors out into places, started collecting data, and then realized they were collecting a lot of data, an almost ridiculous amount, really. And they had all these rows of data, and they thought, look at the look at, the, look at the stuff we can do with it. But eventually they realized they were getting too much, and it wasn't really scalable. So um, especially as you might only be using a small amount of bandwidth on site, so I might have a... I might have a, a, a temperature um, dealy in the corner of my room, telling the um, my Azure service how warm it is in here. But if I've got a hundred of those, I'm only using a small amount of bandwidth on site. But it's starting to it's starting to become a bit of an issue at my central point, and and Azure bandwidth is effectively you know infinite in that sense, but it's not cheap. So the edge computing part in IoT sense is how do I do a bit of processing on site to say actually can i can i rationalize this down a bit and only send the important stuff so that i'm not doing that work in 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 the data center so so there is an edge computing a use case and it kind of makes sense but i think for goldman sachs to be uh talking about it now as some kind of radical um future of uh computing when it was on our podcast you know back in the earlier. when
0: we were still in mono that's yeah, how long ago it was yeah. um so, yeah, yeah, I think probably it is. It's it's their presentation of what this is, which is the way they say, oh, no, but you know, it's autonomous car." I never for a moment would have thought that an autonomous vehicle would have been able to do it and then do all the processing cloud based. I mean, can you imagine you know, that? Just, <laughs> yeah, no, um... I can, <laughs> uh, yeah, and the instant death that would be involved. I absolutely can imagine it. And obviously, your internet can't.
1: is buffering, as is your car, into a tree. But,
0: I think it's probably, I was jaded as well um, by the fact that I got this, um, here I can show you, obviously the listeners can't see this, but uh, from a very excited um, booklet through the post printed on paper from my bank. This is a bank I've relatively recently moved to and relatively recently moved to. And you think, you know, I, I'm not the most high tech business in the world, but I'm not a Luddite. And then on after they've gone through some stuff about how they're going to change their gdpr terms or something and then they're going to have uh, a, a quick deposit services changing because they've shut all their branches and then on page four extreme excitement about how they've now got a a new faster check clearing system taking it from six days down to two days to be able to clear paper checks i haven't written a paper check in a decade Um. Oh man and the fact is they're going oh no we can do paper checks in two days but we also take two days to still get electronic transactions to show up in your business bank account as well it's just these people
1: I can, so anyway, you, I can tell you I can tell I could tell you about a forty-two fifty 250 company who up to last year the end of last year was still paying some suppliers by check and these are these were figures of tens of thousands of pounds
0: they are and then look at this the last two pages of this booklet that they've gone to the effort of being able to think uh, for notes.
1: Well, you've it's got to make some notes you read there. <laughs> yeah, I, I nice. hope you've been making notes because they're going to come around and ask you about that.
0: Uh, anyway, so anyway, banks mm. and technology is usually a disaster zone. Indeed. It reminds
1: me. Yeah, it reminds me of that thing about. And um, uh, I'm sure I heard this on a, on some sort of a comedy program, but the idea that a bank should have a magazine and it delivers to your to your house, and then 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 you've got to read the magazine, and you might find out about you know Enya's ISA or something and uh, that that's a (laughs) it's a thing that banks would do and send you a magazine so you could read about Uh, some uh, actual planning having said that i was a couple of weeks ago and
0: i needed to take a a call and i was in the west end and trying to find somewhere to be able to take a call which isn't a really noisy kind of coffee place is hard and then i suddenly had this oh look there's a there's a branch of my bank just there and went in and i used it why don't they they talk about supporting small businesses. Why don't all the central London just become um, uh, basically hot desk places for their customers to be able to touch down and use as a, a workspace? Uh, it would it would get great customer loyalty. Obviously, though, I've gonna link two and two and made four, which is something that the banks are also often incapable. Yeah, you're, of. anyway,
1: you're, you're you're just thinking, you know, way too far out of the box there, mate. Right? You need to need to calm oh. down. Oh, by, by the way, you talked about promoted tweets. I, I I don't often. I sometimes I use the Twitter app, uh, and sometimes I use another app which isn't doesn't have any of the promoted tweets on it. If I use the Twitter app and I see a promoted tweet, I just I've just got an automatic reaction that I block the account. Oh, that's my that's my instant reaction. So I see.
0: I, I yeah, I, I prefer to be able to send out Sark. <laughs> it's much <my laughs> more <funny book. laughs> Uh, anyway, so that's uh, that's the internet yin this week. Internet yang. What have you got for us?
1: Oh well, this is something I know we try not to do this actually because normally um, we like to keep it reasonably fresh, fresh for our listeners. Um, but this was something I shared on the channel, on the WhatsApp channel this week, and it was the website promoting the new Captain Marvel film from. No, yes, Captain Marvel. That's right, Captain Marvel from Marvel. I'm not. Uh, I'm not going mad. And the Captain Marvel film is set in the 1990s. So uh, it, it, with a great deal of love and care and attention, somebody at Marvel has created a website that looks like a website from the 90s and complete with uh, fairly blocky uh, little uh, graphics and sort of animated GIFs and um, low-res pictures. And they've even gone to the trouble of creating a broken image um, Anchor, if you know what I mean, so that so that it looks like an image hasn't downloaded and oh, the little it, cross, yeah. Yeah, and they've gone to the trouble of creating an embedded media player to play the video. Yeah, a very small kind of postage stamp size um video in in a do you remember real player? Do you remember when Real yeah, Player yeah, was a yeah, 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 Real Player in the world.
0: Well, it was because the BBC, for some reason, and I think mostly because there was this guy called Brandon who was involved with the internet of the BBC. And the only thing that people knew about brandon real- he was this mythical creature who lived at Kingswood Warren, which is a mythical place, literally a castle- <clears throat> and Brandon had only one thing in life which is he detested Microsoft, and that was the main reason why for so long real player was the 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 thing that you had to have to be able to consume any content on the b b c s any streaming content on the b b c s website, even though you had to pay for real player. it was this bizarre state of affairs. Um, so yeah, I very much remember Real Play.
1: And um, the, the other thing was QuickTime then, wasn't it? There were the two really, they were the two movie standards, uh, and then
0: and then Flash came along. And
1: oh my word, yes, Flash. Well, there, there, there's no um, Flash on this website. It's pre-Flash, uh, pretty much, um, and it is it is quite nice and well worth a look. Uh, I, I am sad enough to have had a look at the source. HTML to see if it had any front page tags in it, because if they'd actually gone to the trouble to write it in Microsoft front page, then not only would I have applauded their artistic uh, talent, but also their stamina and patience for having to to try to, to create a website in Microsoft front page.
0: Yeah, which would have only then, of course, worked in Internet Explorer, because that's the way that HTML rolled back in those days. Um, I tried to have a look at it when you first posted the link, and I got a 503 error, which I thought was extremely accurate, but actually was because the thing was overloaded, which was quite entertaining. Um, I have been thinking about it, though, since you shared it, and it's the way that, say, in fashion you get... Um, things coming back so in fashion music whatever else there's a lot of 80s stuff in music there's a lot of 80s influence in in music at the moment Um, you get you know waves of fashion coming back so we've had 80s revival and blah 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 Um, I guess it's we are now at a point of maturity on the internet where we will start to get revival so obviously this is one that's been created as a a one-off thing but at some point we will start to see vogue around internet starting to be able to be retro to other eras of pre uh, you know earlier versions of the world wide web and i guess maybe this is the start of seeing that kind of thing going on um and that is just going to be weird
1: quite frankly weird but, you but know, exciting man well, exciting yeah well, no, we might absolutely. be fashionable you know, well, no, there's it, no, there's no there's chance. going to come to a point where you and I may well be fashionable. No, they,
0: they, they, let's be quite clear. Let's be absolutely rock solid clear on that. You and I, sorry, <laughs> are not going to be fashionable, but we will be able to look at it misty eyed and remember back to a time when uh, it was a simpler world on the World Wide Web and um, uh, far less reliable, and there was a lot of modems.
1: That's right. Those are the days, aren't they? Eh? Those, Those were the days. days.
0: Of course, there's all that stuff that Charlie Brooker got around the side of the, um, uh, the the Netflix Black Mirror special Bandersnatch, where they had, and I can't remember exactly, but basically there was a there was a, an Easter egg in the show that gave you oh, a I link to something yet. where you had to download, and this is how how you had to get into it, you had to download an audio file which was a Sinclair Spectrum or Commodore sixty four or something. Uh, data file which you then had to load into an emulator or into an actual device to be able to play a couple of games that they had custom built just for the show but you had to go through all of the links to be able to actually well, get it lesson. in i don't know that kind of attention to detail shows that there's too much money in netflix quite frankly
1: <laughs> <laughs> so as promised We're going to talk about systems integrators. And Matt, you went to talk to Mark Wilson, one of our many, many loyal followers and listeners, uh, uh, who's an architect at Rizul. How did that go?
0: Uh, It was good. Um, So I've known Mark for uh, quite a long while now. I've known him since my time at Microsoft. And he was uh, for a long while working for one of the big, big traditional systems integrators. I think he actually started his career at ICL. Um, And then a couple of years ago now, he shifted and went to a more modern systems integrator. And I think they've got quite a different outlook on how to approach stuff. And I wanted to just explore with him a bit about what a systems integrator does in 2019 and beyond. So to start off, I asked him what exactly it was that a systems integrator is.
2: If you look at traditional systems integrators, they basically took your kit ran it for a number of years, 5, 10, 15 years, provided service back to you. There'd have been a number of points in that contract where they were going to do a uh, technical refresh. Um, and they basically managed your IT in line with a bunch of SLAs. Um, so it was less integration and more outsourcing. Um, maybe that's quite a narrow view, actually, because there'd be some, yeah, some application development which, which would involve some some systems integration but it was very much the we' we're, we're the big guys we know what we're doing and we can take away that IT from you because that's not core to your business
0: And I guess most of them came from a, a history I and mean, you think ICL which became ICL Fujitsu IBM obviously uh, actually came from a background of being you know hardware and software manufacturers back in the day.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was quite interesting because I I started my career in ICL, and when I started, we're talking about the times of you know PC rollouts, early PC rollouts, and Windows NT and NetWare, and you know all of those technologies from the the, the, the early to mid nineties. And um, we actually had a consultancy business there, which was probably doing business in the region of you know a typical deal size somewhere between fifty and two hundred thousand, and um, it was very like the sort of organisations that are rising up now in the SME space. And I, I left that part of ICL in 1999, went to work for Capital. And when I came back to Fujitsu a number of years later, um, it had all changed. We weren't interested in small work anymore. It was all about the big outsource contracts. And um, I think that was to try and compete better in the... In in the SI space, Um, but then that—that's a very different business model. When you come to picking up the types of work that's available today to try and move people to the cloud or to do pieces of work on G Cloud and sort of following the the SME agenda that that started to come from a change in government policy in the early 2000s So I don't know what drove us there. It might have been the dot com bubble, Um, but certainly something changed and the SIs were, were all about the big
0: yeah and it was well there was that vogue around um, outsourcing your non-core activity and outsourcing your non I guess you call it value adding activity so I think back to my time at the BBC in the late 90s and there was a big outsourcing deal there to I think it was Siemens in the end who got it um, and that was just at the cusp of when people were starting to realise that actually information technology and in a media organization that was starting to get actually really blurred with distribution and, and and you know the creative technologies. Um but maybe this wasn't just stuff you stuck in the back office and it was just a cost to be maintained. And a lot of those outsourcing deals of course were driven primarily on lowest cost. Even you know, even if they said they weren't, it was all almost always about getting in a deal that meant that you could show a, a reduction in your general costs because this outsource provider had scale therefore they could run it cheaper than you could that was kind of i guess the economic logic behind that
2: it, it was and then you got into this world of different generations of outsource so you talk about somebody who was on a third generation outsource and, and basically customers had, had learned how to manage the outsourcers so that when they then recontracted they said, right, OK, here's all the things that didn't work too well for us the first time. These are the things that, yeah, we got the cheap cost, but we didn't really get value. These are the things that we're going to manage this time around. And so the relationship changes when they go out to tender the next time and the next time and the next time until they, they find something which does work for them. But what I'm seeing now, particularly in local government, is stuff going back in-house. And it's always been quite cyclical. Um, you know, outsource in source, but I think now people are starting to look at: well, are they really getting value from those large contracts? And can they work with an organisation that will help them with the bits they don't know, whilst uh, retaining some sort of IT function and adopting cloud services? It's kind of like as you move to the Microsofts and the Amazons and maybe the Googles to um, you know to provide some of your IT services. um, Do you need a big SI or do you actually need somebody who's going to come along and help you on that journey and help you manage change?
0: Yeah, it's been interesting actually, because I think the the public sector in the UK is sort of leading the way in this. And I find that a bit bizarre. And I'm not sure actually what's going on with government at the moment is obviously a little bit haphazard. um, But I'm not sure that this current administration actually realises that they have presided over a strategic change that's meant that government, both public and private sector, has brought into the public sector an awful lot of technology roles, because that seems to be very counter to the traditional conservative... You know, the, since the Thatcher years of the Conservative Party, about outsourcing anything that is possible to outsource. And actually, you have seen in local and central government the building up of these new technology functions in house. Um, is that something you're seeing in private sector organisations as well?
2: Um, probably less so in private sector organisations. Um, but what I'm seeing from the perspective of what our business looks like is we started out. 14 years ago as a consultancy then we provided support services which generate what they became more managed services over time and yeah it's a subtle difference between what's support and what's managed services but it's the way you package it up and 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 sell it back to people and then you start to look for for other pieces as well because um we found that there were some gaps around some of the um the, the major products that we could Provide solutions, you know, software solutions, um, but actually the probably the biggest thing, and it's something that I've seen in the four, nearly four years I've been at Rizal, is developing a skills business. So, um, going out to education and partnering to create academies to generate a new digital workforce, but also. Uh, working with customers so that when we're deploying technology to them, it's not just deploying technology, it's helping them to develop the skills, whether that's the skills to operate that technology or to use it. Because, I mean, the I'll give a classic example. I do a lot of work with the Microsoft Cloud and particularly around Office 365. But we have people who are still using Word the same way that I wrote a document 20 years ago you know they're still using email to send everything around people won't change until you show them how to do new ways of of working so the role of the if if you call an organization like the one where i work an si the role of the si has changed from just running your it more cheaply to helping you to get more value and helping you through the the change
0: and that that's quite a um a profound shift and I mean, if, if you were to build a company from scratch today, um, I don't think you would necessarily even have an IT department. Because if you were building from scratch and you were, you know, if you were if you were using services that had you know, were built for cloud and had APIs and uh, were able to integrate, um, You know, at my very small business level, I've got a business management package that integrates seamlessly with my bank, uh, which integrates uh, seamlessly with my productivity platform. And I don't need to do anything to allow that other than flick a few switches on screens. But, of course, most organisations don't have the luxury of a completely blank piece of paper.
2: No. So there's, there's two things there. There's one is very few. Genuine green fields exist. So, I worked with a customer recently who was setting up effectively setting up a new bank. Um, And apart from the core banking platform, which was bought in from a specialist, everything they were doing was in the cloud. But they still needed an IT department to integrate things. Uh, And that IT department still needed help. So, it didn't matter that it was running in the Microsoft cloud. There was still service to support virtual service. You know, it wasn't all platform or software as a service. So, then, yeah, yeah, there's there's things, bits of tin and string still exist even if they're virtualized. Um, I think at some point in your, if if we go back to your completely fresh start from the ground company, at some point that company will scale to a point where it has to start investing in some of those overheads. So it's a bit like at some point you need an HR specialist. At some point, you need somebody who really does understand finance. And at some point, you really need somebody who understands IT. And it might not be when you're a 5-, 10-, 15-person organisation, but probably by the time you're a 50-seat organisation, you're starting to look at those things. And then when you're a 500-seat organisation, you definitely need them. So as as the business grows and the requirement for those professional roles, if that's a way to look at it, grows as well. And what they should be doing is stopping you from ending up with a completely haphazard set of systems that maybe don't work very well together and and getting you to a point where IT is delivering value to your business. HR is actually meaning that your people are are, are looked after. Um, Finance is meaning that your bills are getting paid on time uh, and that you're doing things in a tax efficient way. And, you're unlikely to get those sorts of results if you just sort of drift through
0: yeah no that's that's a fair fair assessment i think um i guess then the other question is is as uh both for systems integrators and also for for in-house uh technology departments as the the technology landscape does change and we're a long way away from um established organizations having pure cloud pure everything APIs, pure 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 because you know it's not reality um but undoubtedly the needs from uh in-house or an external provider from an organization are changing because as you don't have to manage services you don't have to manage physical infrastructure as you don't have to be able to manage some of the the complexities at lower levels that were there before um you know, do we have people with the right sorts of skills profiles to be able to take on what the new things are?
2: Almost certainly not. And I think that's why a lot of the cloud deployments that I see these days are just doing... That, that, that You know, I talked about the generations of outsourcing. I think there's generations of cloud use as well. So there's still far too many organisations, in my view, who are lifting and shifting to Amazon or to Azure and they're still running virtual machines, they're just running them in a public cloud rather than on some some servers in a data center of their own. That means they've still got to manage some kind of hybrid infrastructure because they still have people who go to offices and sit at desks and need to connect via an internet connection to these services. And that's, if you like, stage one. you've talked on the podcast with Chris and with others about how the, the world of work is changing and actually why do we need to go to offices and that's a much broader broader thing but as businesses grow up if you like and people work in the types of environments that we're in now where we're both in our home offices and having a conversation um, then you start to think well why is there a a core business network, you know, why isn't everybody using their internet connection? And and if, you, if you're starting to use more software as a service, then that all starts to fit together. There's somewhere in between, which is the applications and services that organizations have lifted to the cloud but are still really running on a Windows server or a Linux server just, just virtualized in Azure. Um, you at some point need to think about how you modernize them. Because once you're in the cloud, the number one thing that you want to do is to optimise to save money. Because otherwise, you're just paying a bill to Microsoft or Amazon or Google or whoever every month. You want to make that bill smaller. Um, so it's it's I wouldn't wouldn't say it's RIP, but when when we work with people to help them move to the cloud, we we look at what we call six R's. Um, so. You look at your application estate and you, you either want to retire an application, you'll re-host it, which is really lift and shift to IaaS. You'll refactor it so you start to use some platform services. You'll Ideally, you'll replace it with software as a service because actually you don't really want to be worried about the technology. Um, some of your real core business systems you might re-envision this is where it's starting to sound very markety because we're just picking words to do with "r." Um, but 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 that's probably a combination of all those things. And then um, there's always a do nothing option as well. Some things will remain. You should um,
0: call it rebuild rather than re envision. It's less. I,
2: yeah. There you go. Yeah. There you go. I've got. I'll update the slides. Very but, good. No, thanks for that. And um, but that I mean that's not ours. That's. Gartner had five R's back in, I know you love Gartner. Gartner had five <laughs> R's back in 2010-11. Amazon made it six in 2012. Um, somebody in Rizul thought they'd invented the six that I just read out to you, but they clearly read something somewhere. You know, this is quite a common, commonly used approach to to sort of carve up the application state and look at how you can move things forward. But you're always trying to move to the right. So if you've got software as a service as where you want to be, you're kind of trying to get as close to that as you can. Um, and what I guess I'm saying in a very long-winded way is you're never done. So th- there are there are always things to do to, to run the IT better, even when you're in the cloud.
0: There's an interesting um, analysis I think you can put onto that, which is about the value of maintenance as opposed to innovation. And I think Chris and I have spoken about this at, at some point in the 90, however many episodes we're up to now. Um, uh, there is a movement in the US called the Maintainers. maintainers. Um, and what that says is that the technology industry is obsessed with new, the new, new innovation. But actually the reality of it is where the value comes from is the people who keep the lights on. And whilst the nature of the things that need to be kept going is changing, uh, actually the value that an organisation gets from its technology isn't from constantly bunging new stuff in, but from being able to be sensible about how it's able to be able to maintain and keep going the stuff that is is there. But there's a I guess a a deeper challenge there that the the self image of the technology industry is about innovation doesn't play well with the skills that it really needs which is about kind of almost a, a conservatism, as a, um, yeah. does
2: that make sense? I mean, it, yeah it does, I mean I think innovation is a word that gets used and abused in, in our industry. Uh, and I, I don't think there's a huge amount of innovation that goes on and um, if, if you look at innovation, innovation as being something that's going to take something that exists and rethink it and do it in a different way that's going to give extra value um, that's one definition some people seem to confuse innovation and invention some people seem to think oh we'll stick a load of new features into a product that's innovation and it isn't you know um but coming back to the point about almost the the, the maintenance the keeping the lights on versus the the doing new things that's that's a challenge that i see over and over in organizations who are struggling to get their heads around how they work in a world where software as a service is delivering micro-changes every couple of weeks. And that button that was there yesterday is now a different colour or has moved to a different part of the screen. Um, And there's there's an element of, well, that's the world that you've moved into, but there's an element of how can you prepare people for that change? and and so there's there's work to be done with customers around the governance of their systems once they're in the cloud so governance is a very grand word but it's about you know maintaining control and staying on top of roadmaps and knowing that a change is coming along and that on a particular date you'll need to update your browser or you'll need to update your client software um, or there's going to be a change which you've run with a subset of users and you've seen that it doesn't have any negative impact, but it's going to be pushed out to everybody on the 31st of December or w- whatever it is, you know. Um, so managing systems becomes more that sort of maintenance and less about um, looking after tenant strength.
0: And I guess that there's a whole set of then complexities because the control that has underpinned traditional models of IT management, as in we have control... And so, when we say things will happen more or less, we can we can hold to uh, that model held up until about ten years ago, maybe. But since the internet has become uh, everywhere within and outside of organisations, it isn't the case anymore. But you know, the, it doesn't seem okay. DevOps is the closest I think we have to um, ideas around how the models for managing change at a technical level can be rethought there still seems to be a lot of it which is about the idea of nothing changes until things change as opposed to everything is changing yeah. all the time
2: yeah and and that's devops is i i would say that devops is more coming from the angle of stopping people from developing something and then chucking it over the wall to support and you've got two organizations one of them wants to change everything and one of them wants nothing to change and you know um frameworks like ITIL and yeah their ilk try to do something around that and then what you do is you wrap everything up in process so that you have a process for managing change. Um, DevOps is is more well let's work closely together so that we're all invested if you like in in, in the change. Um, I think there's there's broader change to deal with as well. It's not just the IT management piece, it's it's the how do people change the way that they work with IT. Um, so helping people to understand that it's not just something that IT are doing because that's what IT do, that there's actually something in it for you as an end user. I was in a really strange situation a couple of months ago because the PC that I use for work had to be rebuilt and it wasn't rebuilt because it was a Windows PC and every now and again it slows down and it needs to be rebuilt and something's not working. It was rebuilt because my team wanted to manage it in a different way basically somebody did to me what I've been doing to people for 25 years. <laughs> and, and it was just like, oh my word, it was all working brilliantly for me before and now this this bit's changed or this bit doesn't work quite as well as it did or, and there's other things that work fantastically. Um, and I'm sort of going through that, is it is it the Sara curve, the shock? Curve? Yeah, or yeah, yeah. well, the, yeah. the
0: Kubler-Ross stuff as well, yeah.
2: Yeah, um, and okay, you, you, know, you accept it at the end. But what we talk with people about doing is, and again, this isn't ours, this is from a guy called Jeff Hyatt, um, and it was popularized by ProSci as a model called Adcar. So if you work with people on a change management basis, you're first of all making them aware that a change is coming along, so that's the A. Then you're generating a desire for them to want this change you know well it's it's going to be better for you because it's going to allow you to do this or it's going to save you some time or whatever and the knowledge then comes around you know what does it mean the ability is the how can they they use whatever it is that's changing this isn't necessarily technology this could be a business process change you know and then the reinforcement is the going back and helping people to carry on doing that new thing, because otherwise they'll just revert to the way that they've always done things. And if you take an approach like that, you're much more likely to land the changes that are happening all the time in our in our world of IT are much more likely to to land well and and, and have a positive outcome and and sort of affect change in, in the business.
0: Yeah, I think. I mean, I think AdCar is a big step forward in terms of of, of thinking within IT project. I tweeted something yesterday, though, about how still there's an overriding thing, which is change management is still, by most organisations, still seem to be thinking that it's something that's about communications. And I think, actually, to an extent, AdCard does reinforce that because it's quite a marketing-y kind of focus thing. Maybe. and And it's quite discreet as well, which is the other challenge, which is that actually change... You yeah, know, cliche klaxon, but change is the only constant. You know, that, that actually... You don't have the luxury of that kind of nicely campaign-based big change stuff because the buttons move from that side to that side because the supplier did it and you don't have any choice about it. And there's um, how do you get people to be able to just deal with the fact that there is a sort of level of constant chaos um, which can't be planned for. Maybe it's about being able to also think about how do we get people to be... a, a, a not technology people here i think you know organi- people in organizations generally how do we get people to be more adaptive how do we get people to be able to just ride it but as you say most people are using word in the same way that they were when they first used word however many decades ago that was as we do with most of the software that we have
2: Yeah. And we, as you've said before, we fundamentally produce documents formatted for a piece of A4 paper that sit on a sixteen by nine screen in front of us. It's, it's, it's all back to front, you know. <laughs> uh, anyway, we digress. But um, yeah, so I think coming back to that 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 point around almost dealing with micro change, constant change, and change isn't going to a to a, a, you know, a change advisory board because well, it probably is, but. Let's hope that you're going to the cab to prepare for the change rather than going to the emergency cab to deal with the change that's been done to you. Um, If we step away from the IT department and think about the end users for a moment, um, we're all kind of used to our phones updating applications all the time, and I think people are a bit more resilient than we give them credit for. I went into the mail on my iPhone this morning, and and the Outlook app had changed colour because it had a big blue border across the top. I was like, oh, that looks different. Um, But all my messages are still in the place I expect to see them. And because it's lots and lots of little changes that you can just deal with, um, it's less of the significant... You know, IT come along every five years and give you a new suite of applications uh, approach. You know, oh my goodness, the the ribbons come or gone or whatever it does in the latest version of Office. I don't actually care anymore. I just jump between them. I know roughly where everything's going to be. <laughs> um, and and I think if you if you're dealing with lots of lots of change. In a, on a small basis then then it bec- almost becomes easier to handle
0: so just to, to um, finish up then the, the, you're an enterprise architect i've been in the past an enterprise architect um do you think the discipline of enterprise architecture is keeping up with what's going on
2: i think if you talk to a, if you talk to an enterprise architect they probably do a very different job to another enterprise architect There's lots of us that have that job title and there are enterprise architecture frameworks, but I'm not sure that enterprise architecture is a widely accepted thing. And that maybe answers your question in that, um, no, it's not keeping up. Enterprise architecture, um, when I've seen it done well, has been outside the IT department. It's actually been a business function because of course the technology architecture is only one part of, of it. Um, but I think a lot of enterprise architects are um, on a spectrum somewhere between technical architect, solution architect, and interfacing in with with CXOs, and wherever you have to be on that line on that day.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a fair a fair observation. It does feel though that these 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 skills about being able to understand where. Um, technology and business process, and data, and organisational structure, and you know all these different facets of an organisation, where where they coalesce, is probably more needed now than ever it has been. But you know, as you say, where that role sits is, I think, probably the starting challenge.
2: It's a bit like why the CIO often works for the CFO. Um, yeah, maybe maybe the business change function. Includes the enterprise architects, and they sit in a similar part of the organisation. But yeah, that's that's a whole new discussion. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe we'll do that one next time. <laughs> so that was a, a interesting conversation and sort of trip through the life of systems integrators over the years, um, and some interesting points there about where we're going to with that particular industry and. I mean, we talked about, it. we didn't we do an episode about systems integrators back in, again, in the early days of this podcast, and we talked about a little bit about the big SIs, about the fact that the big ones are almost they're big, but they're not big enough, so they're not as big as Apple and Google and to have that real might, or Microsoft, but they are also so big that they can't keep up with the pace of change today. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does, and I think the, the other thing is, of course, a lot of what they've traditionally done is being eaten away through big cloud providers. So it was an exercise in engineering. And I think the challenge for a lot of them is going to be that where the value now lies. If, if you've got cloud being, you know, cloud services that are being delivered at scale to be able to do modern systems that you don't need to worry about any of the plumbing or servers or any of that sort of stuff. And you know, there's there's definitely lots of work to be able to manage legacy and manage, you know, keeping technical debt as small as possible. But the kind of value stuff of change and delivery of things being different, I think they're str- certainly the big traditional ones are really struggling with. And you're seeing a lot of organisations bringing skills back in house.
1: I think that's true, but I also think that. A lot of Mark was what Mark was saying, and the where the conversation was going around those architectures now, and systems integrators becoming more cloud transformation style people is to do. So I saw a presentation last week from a chap called Martin Driscoll, who's a well, an ERP specialist from his background. But I was doing some work with apprentices uh, in Birmingham, and Martin came to talk to them about what what businesses do and how they work, and. We got into a part of, about about the future of business and how technology supports it, and he had two diagrams or two pictures to, to articulate our older monolith type uh, models of, of, of systems and and the newer I don't know microservices, serverless, all of that kind of stuff. And the monolith was a Jenga tower, and the 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 newer uh, sort of microservices world was a jigsaw. And his point was with the Jenga tower to take one piece out you are going to have to take quite a lot of things apart because of you know all the tightly coupled stuff etc with a jigsaw you could potentially change a bit of the jigsaw and a you know you could if it's a jigsaw and it had a big picture of london with a london bus in it you could change the bus to a taxi it would take some work and it would take some effort to make sure everything fitted in okay but you could you could do that and just t- change that bit of the jigsaw so is that kind of jenga to jigsaw model that you're trying to get to. And Mark talked about that um, spectrum, didn't he, of left to right. So on the left, you're going to you're moving to cloud and you're doing infrastructure of a service. And on, on the far right hand side, it's all SaaS and everything's very modular, et cetera. But that's really difficult in my experience, because often you do have legacy applications. So if you go into any business, you often you've got legacy applications and often they're they're pretty core and there's a lot of data in them. And to move them to cloud means moving their data with them. And if you move their data, then you're back to that kind of bandwidth situation where where you're now having to hoover up lots of data up and down pipes in order to present it to, to users. And it's not always the case, but you can't always re-architect those legacy applications to, to change how that works. And often they just won't work with SQL services and things like that. You have to put them on the, the architecture they were built for. So then you're into rebuilding and replacing, you know, or the later R's in the six R's that Mark talks about, which is always very expensive. And again, you can deal with that. But then again, as you get to the SaaS world, you are then struck with other problems. So just today I've been talking to a business about ERP change. And I've been getting quite excited about the fact as I, as I've looked into the uh, sort of tier 2 ERP world there's lots of um ERPs that are on the market now that that we wouldn't have had access to before and and when you look at where these companies come from they're from all over the world really and they would have if you think about those companies in in the 90s and then in, in the noughties built ERP systems and sold them they would generally be relatively regional they wouldn't really be International in that sense because they'd have a they'd have a, a user base and they'd they'd have the people they could sell to and manage manage and all those sort of things and they'd off most of them they'd be on prem because there'd be no viable cloud service the successful companies out of those have in order to survive looked to refactor and rebuild their product to, for the cloud which is fantastic in in many ways because what they've suddenly totally done now is they've taken a, a product they could sell regionally nationally if you like. And they've made it available internationally because now it's a cloud service, so go for it. Anybody can have it. They've taken you know, what's been perfectly good but invisible to the world ERP and made it available around the world. But when you're talking ERP, something that's making your business go, which, which people rely on every day, would you really go and buy a piece of cloud software from Canada or something without being absolutely sure that it's still gonna be there next week, next year and whatever? That whole due diligence piece around cloud software, when it's when it's absolutely critical, has got to be absolutely watertight. And I don't think we do it. I don't know. That
0: I th- Well, I, I think that the due diligence is way better than it used to be when everything was on premise, because the, the thing that's driven better due diligence about software providers has been the portability of data and if you think and actually this is starting to change again now because cloud has become accepted and their but when when cloud services were were first being uh, brought to market the the thing that would often be the the deal breaker would be i need to see what your data exit strategy is because i need to know how to get the data out so that i can move to a different provider and that question was never asked for on-premise stuff i i know i was involved with lots of projects up until The early 2000s when I started to get involved with software, sorry, late 2000s when I started to get heavily involved with software as a service. Um, But nobody ever asked the question, how do we get data out of Informatica or how do we get data out of Infamix or whatever other systems I can think of? And how do we get it into a competitive product? Because you didn't think like that because you thought, well, the servers are there and it's in our data center. So it's all safe, isn't it? and you know actually um uh infamix which was the one of the database contenders against oracle and sql server in the late 90s and then eventually got bought out by ibm and then just dwindled and uh that left part of the bbc i was working on with a massive amount of technical debt because the fact was that it got acquired and then run into the ground so that those those risks are always there even with big ish providers um, but I think that the discipline of your data being elsewhere for a while certainly promoted a higher level of due diligence. I'm not sure it's there and again now.
1: Mm, maybe I don't know. I mean, I think even if my database provider goes bust, I can still get to my data. I mean, well, any time no, you move uh, data from one ERP no. to another, it's not going to be in the same format. You know, even if you're moving a bill of materials from this ERP to that that ERP. The fields, the structure, the relationships aren't aren't necessarily going to be the same. You're going to have to write the transformation to do that. Whereas if I've got an on-prem piece of software and I've got access to it, okay, it's not quite the case with some of the providers, but generally speaking, you can dredge out the information somehow.
0: But just because you can see the SQL, just because you can see the tables, doesn't mean you can understand the semantic meaning no, of how that's it's constructed. Because actually, if you if you this is my, one of my hobby horses this, but if you if you design a database well it looks nothing like the conceptual models you produce of what the data looks like, because for efficiency and effectiveness, you have all sorts of stuff that makes it almost completely unintelligible to the outside eye.
1: Indeed, but you could generally find somebody who could, who knew how that worked, and you, you might have to pay them a load of money, and it will take a lot of time. And I'm not saying it's easy, but it exists, it's there. If it's on the cloud service and the cloud service stops working, you're going to struggle to get it back.
0: Yeah. I think the other question for me, though, on this is, where are the new genres of business application? Because actually, as I look around, you've got ERP systems. Well, we've had those since the 50s. Thank you, um, Lions for Leo, and then everything that came after that. SAP started in the 70s. Oracle started, what, late 70s, early 80s. Um, So ERP is as old as the hills. You've got stuff around that, like HR systems old as the hills, CRM sort of first vogue of that was, what, early 90s. And if you look at the modern applications that are cloud-based, you know, ground up, written for uh, the cloud, their underpinning engineering might be better and less constrained by legacy that, say, Oracle might have struggled with or SAP might struggle with. But what these things do is identical. And those those models of computing that support businesses being so firmly grounded in the very early days of enterprise, I'm, I don't think we're getting innovation in category of product.
1: I think we're getting innovation in those ecosystems. So I would say that, and Salesforce is probably the most obvious example, there are innovative and very profitable software companies who are selling software which just works to consume Salesforce data or, or Manage Salesforce data in a different way, for example. So it's an API economy kind of cell, yeah, or integrate two products, yeah, no, no, or integrate it, that, in, it, products in different ways. So I think that's probably where a lot of the innovation is.
0: But that's, um, I mean, okay. So what that is is, uh, and I've seen this a lot, particularly with Salesforce, is that you get effectively skins that sit over the top of it that are for a particular industry sector. So. Yep. There's a, there's one for law. There's one for uh, pharmaceutical companies. There's one for HR systems managers. But you know various incarnations of these things. Um, but all that's doing that's a that's, a, that's a, an infrastructural level stuff. And still at the end of the day, you know I don't know if, how much you view Salesforce. It's pig ugly and looks like Oracle in the nineties. You know it, it's not actually that much of a user experience shift from anything that came before. And still mostly people really struggle to get it to work because nobody bloody likes CRM. Nobody likes using the ERP system. You know, I look at the, the things that I, I see from either clients or from, um, you know, seeing my wife fill in expenses claims and the like, and you look at these things and you go, OK, so it was in a browser. Apart from that, I could be 20 years ago.
1: Oh, yeah. And and maybe we should do a, an episode one day on CRM and why it's the classic file project, because it, it, it speaks to a lot of the problems that we see in, and I'll say IT, but of course, the problem with CRM isn't generally an IT problem. Yeah.
0: Absolutely not. Anyway, so um, that's good. Thank you to Mark for being able to make the time. Uh, Fascinating conversation. If you want to find out more about him and his company, uh, you can do so by looking at wb40podcast.com. You can just search the internet for Rizual, R I S -S U A L, and I'm sure you'll find them. And uh, uh, yeah, um, you can join us on the WB40 Podcast uh, WhatsApp channel, and
1: Mark is on there quite often as well.
0: Well, we uh, find ourselves wended towards the weary way of the end.
1: God, I haven't wended so well in a long time.
0: <laughs> well, at our age, it's, it's difficult to be able to wend repeatedly. Um, and uh, so, yes, how how is your week ahead looking?
1: Well, it is uh, looking good, actually. Um, your your comment about age reminded me that um, this week we had a comment on LinkedIn to, uh, just from somebody who really liked... Uh, what we do and buys gallons of our stuff. Did you see that?
0: Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> at some point, we're going to get knocking at the door from the WB 40, <laughs> a WD forty corporation, aren't we? I think it's fair use. I continue to say it's fair use.
1: Well, that's what' so. At the end of the day, we're not selling anything penetrating, are we, Insight or otherwise? So we're uh, <laughs> we're we're not really trained on their toes. <laughs>
0: Oh dear! But um, uh, are you actually doing anything other than just watching out for random comments on LinkedIn?
1: Well, uh, no, that's mainly what I'm doing. Is a, that's what mainly why, uh, what I do every day. But I am. Oh, I'm going to London. I'm going to. I'm going to. Um, I'm going to. I've got a day with a client tomorrow, and then I've got a day in London uh, doing some stuff uh, on Wednesday. And it's yeah, it's just it's just crackers at the minute. And I've got another project that I'm doing with, around around a bid, which is uh, kind of. Helter Skelter and uh, all very uh, interesting as well. So, well, I can't move for stuff at the minute. How about yourself?
0: I'm I'm starting to be able to get some stuff in the time. It's been <laughs> a slow start to the year, but I've had uh, no bits and bobs all over the place. But I've got the uh, the workshop tomorrow, and then I've got the start of a piece of work around uh, flexible working in the academic sector, which um, kicks off on Wednesday, and that's uh, going to take me up till probably mid March, I think. Uh, and there's some other pieces that are, are coming through now as well. So um, that alongside the uh, the inventory, styles of play inventory thing that I've been working on and getting out and testing. And a new set of priority cards I'm working on as well, which is pro- uh, startup priorities. Um, so I'm doing some initial research for that. So yeah, loads of stuff going on. All good. Um, so anyway, we better get on with it. Um, and uh, I hope you have a great week. And uh, we will join you again, uh, same time, same place, whenever it is that you listen to us. So until then, cheerio.
1: Thanks for listening. You can catch us, as always, on our website at wb40podcast.com. You can catch us on Twitter at WB40Podcast and on all good podcasting platforms. If you find time, leave us a review. We love it.